Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. This is Cleve Lutzen with The Washington Post. It's Ellen Nakashima with The Washington Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, May 7th. Today, President Trump threatens new tariffs against China, apprenticeship programs for refugees in Germany, and America's first black sports hero. There is no relationship in the history of the world as complicated as the relationship between the U.S. and China. The relationship with China uh, is very strong, probably the strongest it's ever been. They are like a married couple who has been divorced and remarried 50 times. They keep getting in these huge fights. Over the years, we've uh, lost a lot, of, a lot of money to China. Every issue is the biggest issue on the planet, and then they have to come back together because of something else they have that's you know, mutually of concern, and then they get in another fight and it happens again. Now the problem is, these are the two biggest economic superpowers on the planet. So when they get in a fight, it's not over something small and technical. It's a huge end-of-the-world issue, and we're seeing that play out now where President Trump is threatening to impose these taxes on virtually everything that China sends over to the United States, which is more than $500 billion of stuff a year. Damien Paletta is a senior economic correspondent at The Post. He's been reporting on the latest battle in this trade war between China and the U.S. and on how we got here. President Trump has said for decades that the Chinese government is ripping off U.S. businesses and consumers, specifically by subsidizing Chinese companies so it makes it cheaper for their companies to export products to the U.S., and also by manipulating their currency in a way that makes it cheaper for them to export as well. And so last year, President Trump took the unprecedented step of imposing tariffs or taxes on half of all Chinese imports to the United States, and he threatened to do taxes on the other half if China didn't come to the table and negotiate. China retaliated, imposed taxes of their own on a whole bunch of U.S. products, and now we've got this huge mess between both countries where, you know, industries on both sides are getting hurt and everyone's screaming for this to stop. But President Trump thinks the only way to get China to the table is by really twisting their arm. And I feel like when you think about the question of who is affected by tariffs, you have to think about the question of what exactly is a tariff and who is being charged when these tariffs are put in place. This seems like a simple thing, but it gets confused all the time. And actually, President Trump, you know, misstates what a tariff is almost on a daily basis. A tariff is a tax paid by the importer of the goods on a product. So if China sends $100 of widgets to the United States and the U.S. imposes a 10% tariff on the widgets, the importer of the widgets, the U.S. company pays $10 to import that. Now, the widget company in China 
it does not like that because their widgets are now more expensive and maybe a U.S. manufacturer of widgets sells theirs for $90 and there's a competitive disadvantage. And the implication is that there is an incentive for American companies to buy more American products rather than Chinese products because they're not going to be as cheap. Absolutely. And there's tariffs on a ton of different things. There's a long history of the U.S. government imposing tariffs to try to help U.S. producers. And, in, and oftentimes it has helped them. But ultimately... These are taxes that are being paid by the people who are buying the products, by Americans who are buying the products, not by Chinese companies. That's right. The taxes are paid by the businesses. The businesses pass those taxes on to the consumers, and the cost gets passed along. Now, it's one thing if it's on a specific item, a piece of machinery, a semiconductor. But if it's on everything, if it's on iPhones, if it's on computers, if it's on furniture— then those costs really start to build up and you start to see a real impact on the economy. Because we can't buy iPhones from America. We have to buy them from China. That's right, yeah. Why are we talking about this now? The U.S. and Chinese officials have been locked in negotiations back and forth for several months. But things have really intensified in the past few weeks. Last week, the Treasury Secretary and the U.S. Trade Representative went to Beijing to try to set the table for a final round of negotiations this week. And it was at those discussions in Beijing where U.S. officials were sort of alarmed. They felt like the Chinese were beginning to renege on their agreements, backtrack from specifics that they had already said were set in stone. And when Mnuchin and Lighthizer, the U.S. officials, came back to the White House to brief President Trump, he was furious that he felt like this deal that was within his grasp was starting to slip away. And when that happens to him, as we've seen many times before, he, you know, kind of puffs out his chest and tries to threaten the most economically punitive thing he can. And in this case, on Sunday morning, we were all met with this extreme threat to impose tariffs or taxes on everything that China sends to the United States as starting on Friday. Everything. Everything. Every single thing. We get more from China than we get from anywhere else. And every single thing, your house is probably full of everything from China, would face a higher cost starting on Friday. So what are these points of contention between the U.S. and China? The Chinese are furious that President Trump won't agree to lift the taxes he already put in place last year. They think if they're going to agree to changes, then the punishment that they received last year should be removed. And President Trump has so far refused to do that. Now, U.S. officials want specific, concrete agreements from the Chinese that they will stop stealing U.S. intellectual property, that they will make it easier for U.S. companies to operate in China without punishment, and that the Chinese will stop manipulating their currency and doing things like that in a way that gives them an advantage. So there are some specific things that the U.S. officials want, in addition to having the Chinese buy more U.S. products in order to sort of rebalance the trade relationship. We're talking uh, intellectual property protection and theft, <coughs> talking about uh, certain tariffs. It's very important that certain elements of the tariff uh, that uh, is in discussion right now. Those things that the U.S. is seeking to get from China, is China willing to play ball on those things? It seems like they are willing to play ball. The question is, how specific of an agreement are they willing to make? I've been covering these international summits for more than 10 years, where all the leaders get together, they try to hash out an agreement, and the Chinese always like to keep the language very vague because it makes it harder to pin them down in the future that they violate an agreement if the agreement doesn't have specific numbers and things like that in it. So one of the things that U.S. officials want to do is have specific you know, triggers that kick in if China doesn't live up to its part of the bargain. And that's why U.S. officials want to keep these tariffs in place for a long time to kind of force the Chinese to abide by it. 
Now, getting down to the nitty-gritty, getting down to the details and the specific wording, that's always the hardest part of any deal, and that's why they seem to be stuck at the two-yard line. If this is the latest battle in our ongoing trade war with China, what has been the outcome so far, and have Americans gained anything from this trade war? A lot of Americans uh, have not. I mean, there's a lot of farmers who are furious. Soybean prices are really low. Grain prices are really low. You know, they attribute that to the retaliation from the Chinese government. Um, At the same time, because the stock market is high, because the unemployment rate is low and the U.S. economy is doing well, it seems like we've been able to absorb a lot of this, you know, tariff cost. And maybe this is the perfect time for President Trump to try something like this at a time when the U.S. economy, you know, can kind of plow ahead. And so it seems like the impact so far has been measured. It depends who you are, obviously. But things could obviously escalate exponentially if he starts imposing tariffs on anything that comes over from China beginning on Friday. How has the trade war had an impact on the economy in China? That's harder to tell because they're not as transparent about how their economy is doing. And also, the Chinese government has ways to put in place shock absorbers to make things kind of less severe. They don't really have a market-based economy like the U.S. does. It does seem like their economy is not thriving like it had been several years ago. But at the same time, they, they believe they're negotiating from a position of strength. And if they give in to President Trump on this, he'll only kind of double down and try to force more changes. If President Trump were to put this in place, to have tariffs on every single thing that comes in from China, how quickly would Americans start to see that? Americans would start to see it almost immediately because U.S. importers would be paying higher costs on the goods they bring in, but they also would begin adjusting their prices immediately on stuff that we buy every day. And this is the time of year, you know, close to the middle summertime, when there are hundreds and hundreds of giant ships that go from Shanghai to Long Beach and L.A. and San Francisco and Seattle that bring a thousand containers a piece, okay? Huge, those containers you see on trains. These things are stacked on top of these ships and they're just coming and coming and coming with goods and there's a container full of alarm clocks and there's a container full of computers and there's a container full of cell phones and there's a container full of sweaters. They just keep coming with stuff. And that's the stuff that we buy you know, all the time, especially around the holidays, obviously in the second half of the year. And all those things will be more expensive for U.S. consumers if this doesn't get sorted out by the end of this week. So what's going to happen next? That's the big question. I mean, it's interesting. A lot of people have been kind of watching this cautiously. Last year, the stock market in the U.S. went down quite a bit when they thought President Trump was really going to play hardball and he called himself tariff man. His playbook is to threaten something extreme, block the border with Mexico, rip up the NAFTA, do something that no one believes he would do, but then have that crazy look in his eye like, I might just do it. And then people come to the table because they can't risk, you know, the scenario where he does what he threatens to do. And it's worked with Canada. It's worked with Mexico. It's worked with Japan. It's worked with South Korea. It's worked with the European Union. Will it work with China? We don't know. I think if the wheels come off later this week, you are going to see a stock market reaction. You are going to see business leaders start to panic in the U.S. and call the representatives and senators in Washington and ask for something to be done. Um, The Chinese might feel like they can wait this out. Like I said, this relationship has been long and complicated for many, many years. And maybe they think President Trump 
you know, won't be around in a couple of years. There'll be a new president and they'll have a, a better, you know, position of to negotiate from. But I think in the next few days, it's going to be really volatile and there's going to be a lot of things that could happen. And we have two kind of unpredictable nationalist leaders going toe to toe. You know, anything could happen. Damien Paletta is a senior economic correspondent for The Post. There are about 1.5 million asylum seekers living in Germany right now. And that's a good thing for companies offering vocational training. One of the main reasons that companies are so excited about refugees in Germany is that they can't get Germans to participate in these vocational training programs anymore. Refugees are an opportunity. The refugees are predominantly young people. About 60% of them were below the age of 25 when they arrived, and they're trainable. They come very eager to learn, very interested in, in getting a job, obviously. And for a company, this is a golden opportunity. That's Griff Witte, the Berlin bureau chief for The Post. He says that Germany's population is shrinking and aging. And the younger Germans who could be doing this kind of work mostly don't want to. About a third of companies in Germany reported that they had places in these traineeship programs that went unfilled last year. And so as Germany does so well economically, the appeal of these vocational training programs has worn off. And so Germans increasingly are going to university and they're bypassing these apprenticeships. I met several refugees in the course of this reporting. One of them was Shiraz Chowdhury, who's, who's 19 years old. He really feels like this training program, he's training to be an electrician, is going to be the ticket for him to getting to stay in Germany for the long term. These job training programs have existed for decades and actually have their roots in the Middle Ages. Every single profession, there is a rigorous apprenticeship program where for three and a half years or so, you spend half your time getting on the job training and then half your time at a vocational school. And this is a program that is really credited with making Germany the industrial powerhouse that it is. People really get to know their, their professions before they start working. And they have to pass this extremely rigorous exacting exam at the end to prove that they know what they're doing. And if they can pass that exam, then they can, they can get a job with a company that has sponsored them throughout the apprenticeship. Why has this program been good for so many refugees? It's worked well for refugees because it is a way for them to very quickly get into a middle class lifestyle. I say very quickly, of course, it is three and a half years. But for the refugees who have been willing to spend that amount of time and willing also to put in the effort to learn not just conversational German, but really technical German. If you want to be an electrician in Germany, you have to really know some very technical language you're going to be tested on at the end in this exam. And then you have to spend three and a half years in one of these programs. But if you succeed, if you make it through this program, in the end, there is a guaranteed job waiting for you and you're going to make a, a middle class salary. So you go from not arriving with very much. They're not they don't have major or significant financial resources. But if they can get through this job training program, they can get a middle class salary and live a middle class life in Germany. You talked to some of the asylum seekers who are participating in these programs. What did they have to say about it? 
They said it's difficult, number one, because the language is so, so tough, but also because these companies have very high expectations. They're not going to accept just anyone. They want someone who really is dedicated, who is really motivated. I talked to a young man by the name of Alan Ramadan, who fled Syria when the war broke out there. And living in Syria, he always liked to work with his hands, but he had never done any kind of training. And he was able to get an apprenticeship in Germany with one of the biggest car battery manufacturers in the world. I said to myself, how do I apply here? I want vocational training. They gave me information and email. I went back to school and I said, okay, I can get my training where I'm already working and apply for jobs. And they showed me how to apply for jobs here in Germany. And three years later, he's a, a star at this company. He's on his way to becoming a German engineer. And he said it's been really tough, but it's obviously also uh, quite rewarding for him and, and for, for the company because all of a sudden they have someone who could be management material for them down the road. Anyone who wants to work and learn the language, they no longer have excuses. This seems like one of those rare situations where you have two problems that can be solved with one solution. The fact that, you know, you have a lot of people coming in who need jobs and you have a company that needs young people to work those jobs. Is this considered a model for how refugee programs could work in other countries? I think it's a little bit early to say that, but I think the early signs are very promising. And it seems as though Germany had this unbelievable task in front of it when a million plus people came in. And Angela Merkel, the German chancellor, her rallying cry throughout all of this was, we can do it. Uh, she said again and again, we can do it. And it's it's still early to, to know ultimately how this is all going to turn out. But by and large, Germany is doing it. Uh, nearly four years into this, uh, you look at the number of people who are in traineeship programs, you look at the number of people who are employed, and it's roughly on par with what we've seen in previous waves of migrations where people have successfully integrated. And yes, there are, are still obstacles. Yes, there are still problems. Uh, the number of people who are learning the German language needs to go up. Uh, there are a lot of people who aren't employed, who aren't in these traineeship programs. But you are starting to see these, these glimmers of success. And certainly the apprenticeship program, which wasn't set up for refugees, but it just happens to work really well for them, it is a big part of why this, this is going reasonably well. Has there been criticism of the fact that these apprenticeship programs are now serving a huge population of refugees? Not per se, but there's been the whole question of whether these refugees belong in Germany remains hugely controversial. You have a, a far right party, the alternative for Deutschland party that has surged in the polls. It got up to 13 percent in elections two years ago. It's going to do well in the European elections that are coming up later this month. And it's going to do well in state elections later this year. And their entire message is these people don't belong here and many of them need to be sent back. So this apprenticeship program is not controversial. Refugee participation in it is not. But the whole question of whether Merkel was right to allow refugees into the country continues to be a very divisive question in Germany. Do you think that this is something that could be instituted in the U.S.? There's no reason why not. Uh, you know, when Ivanka Trump was visiting Germany last year, she visited one of these apprenticeship programs. And Republicans and Democrats have talked about 
the need to make vocational training a bigger part of the American economy because you have a lot of young people out there who need to be employable and they need employable skills. And if it's not just refugees, it's any young person. And the German model has certainly been one that has often emulated. No one has been able to replicate it exactly because of all of the various ways that, that it works with the German economy and German companies. But there's no reason why something akin to this, something that is modeled after this, couldn't be employed in the U.S. Griff, thank you so much. Happy to do it, Martine. Griff Witte is the Berlin bureau chief for The Post. And now, one more thing. Post reporter Michael Cranish on Major Taylor, America's first black sports hero. In 1896, an extraordinary bicycle race was held in Madison Square Garden. Such races were the most popular sport of the day, more popular than baseball or any other sport in the country. And only white men basically participated in these kind of races. It was a six-day race where the cyclists went around and around the track almost nonstop with an hour here or there for rest. So if you can imagine a scene in which there are thousands of people, the noise is deafening, the smoke from cigarettes and pipes and cigars has filled the arena. You could barely see in front of you at some points because it was so thick with smoke. This race had been hyped as black versus white. The one black participant was an 18-year-old named Major Taylor. This was his first professional race, really. And he came in, and at the time, this was just months after the Supreme Court in its infamous decision had declared in the Plessy versus Ferguson case that separate but equal accommodations were okay. Taylor wanted an equal footing for his race. And in a preliminary bout against a man who was considered the best sprinter in the world, Taylor astonished the crowd by winning. Then he participated in the six-day race. And while he didn't win that one, he did last until the end, unlike a lot of other competitors. So suddenly, Taylor was able to disprove a lot of the racist theories that were being bandied about at the time to uh, justify Jim Crow laws. So it was not just a sporting event. It was an important moment uh, in social history and just the beginning of many such events in which Taylor would participate and stun those who watched him. Three years after the race at Madison Square Garden, uh, he had found that he was often barred from races in the United States. As it happened, the World Championship in 1899 was held in Montreal. There were some white racers from America who wouldn't go to this race because they knew that meant competing against Taylor. And they knew that Taylor, in a lot of cases, was better than they were. But many of the best racers from around the world did come to participate at this race. And Taylor did win the World Championship. He became the world's fastest man. So at that point, uh, the Star Spangled Banner was played in his honor. And Taylor said later that he had never felt more American than he did at this point when he was in Canada and the Star Spangled Banner was played for him. Taylor did see himself as a civil rights pioneer. At first, he wanted to win the races. I mean, this was a step-by-step process. He had to show that he was one of the best riders in the world. And then as he became better and better and won race after race, he did see himself as someone who was representative of his race. He put a lot of pressure on himself because he thought if he failed, he was sending the wrong signal for those who are watching him. Many people, many whites, for example, wanted him to fail. And so he knew that he carried a lot more on his shoulders than simply winning a race for himself. 
Taylor was unique. There's really no other figure like him in the history of this country. He was the first real African-American sports champion, born in this country, uh, became a world champion, also became a national champion. So he did really what no one else had done at that time. It was 12 years before Jack Johnson became the world boxing champion, a half century before Jackie Robinson broke the color barrier in Major League Baseball. Major Taylor really paved the way. Michael Krenish is a political investigative reporter for The Post. His book about Major Taylor is called The World's Fastest Man, and it's out now. You can read an excerpt by going to postreports.com. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening. You can learn more about the stories in this episode by going to postreports.com and join the conversation online using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters and why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat. Available now. Available now.